everyone. Welcome to Disrupt. Today we'll be talking about South Africa and Libya as two cases of states that gave up their nuclear weapons, some of the theories behind it, and the history. I think these two cases are really, really interesting, just in terms of like, you, for these states, like, you had these things that are supposed to to make you safe, right? Well, I guess not in the case of Libya. Libya didn't actually have nuclear weapons, but it dismantled its nuclear program. And it's like, in either case, you were there or on your way to having these tools that sort of like prevent you or make it less likely that you'll be coerced in the international system. And it's like, you willingly gave them up and so I just think that is a, I'm very excited to get into this because it kind of seems wild from like, if you take a, take it from like a traditional realist perspectives, like why would you do that? It's but so interesting. There's interesting reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there are so many interesting regions. I mean, specifically, I mean, the South African case I'm more familiar with than Libya, but I just find the whole situation in South Africa so interesting. And I guess when we're thinking about like ways that we can encourage non-proliferation, neither of these cases are really useful in terms of, I guess, lessons that can be drawn because they're so specific and historically contextual. But Nonetheless, they're still really interesting and probably have a lot of different implications for disarmament. So yeah, I'll kick it off with giving a bit of background around South Africa. So it's the only country that has built nuclear weapons. So they had them, they had six, and they voluntarily dismantled them. And right after they disassembled that, they joined the Treaty of Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, um, allowed inspections. And it's such an interesting case because the president at the time, Plerk, announced that South Africa had been pursuing a nuclear weapons program from 1974 to 1990 as a deterrent to counter perceived Soviet threats in the region. And this originally started, if you remember from our last episode, we talked a little bit about the Atoms for Peace program in Iran. And this was also the same kind of thing. South Africa signed a nuclear agreement with the United States under the Atoms for Peace program in 1957, and that resulted in the country acquiring a nuclear reactor, um, and that was sort of the beginning of it. But by the 1970s, the situation security-wise in Southern Africa had really deteriorated, and this has to do with the Angolan Civil War, troops from Cuba, the imposition of a UN military embargo. There was all of this border insecurity, distress of neighboring countries, doubts about the intentions of Western powers and isolation from the international community because of apartheid and nuclear weapons aspiration. In 1988, this security situation with the Angola civil war, the influence of South Africa in that war, came to an end because a ceasefire was signed between South Africa, Cuba, and Angola. And that led to withdrawal of South African troops from Angola, a tripartite agreement, withdrawal of Cuban troops from Angola, and the independence of Namibia. And so this obviously had a huge impact on South Africa's border security. Um, 
and what was one of the reasons that the country decided to dismantle its nuclear weapons program. So long story short, <laughs> it started with U.S. Adams for Peace program. It became a military deterrent um, or the aspiration for nuclear weapons grew out of this need to deter against what South African saw as a very insecure situation in the Southern Africa region. And when that situation was resolved and there was this lack of Soviet as well as other state intervention, they decided to give up their nuclear weapons. Wild. It's wild. <laughs> I just... <laughs> You just, that's yeah. like where we should be heading. I think it's really interesting that um, South Africa acquired nuclear weapons to protect themselves and what they saw as an insecure regional environment. And then the second, or not the second, but very soon after that was resolved, they gave them up because that's so not the trajectory for normal nuclear states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean... Libya but it's really interesting because you see you do see some similarities between what was happening in South Africa and what also led Libya to give up their nuclear weapons so in 69 um 1969 when Gaddafi took over led a military coup took over Libya um they still ratified the non-proliferation non-proliferation treaty in 1975 um but they still, they were still like secretly seeking nuclear weapons, trying to acquire uranium, trying to acquire the materials needed for enrichment. Um, so violating all of these like international norms, international laws um, for a very, very similar reason, because they wanted to assure their own regional security. Um, but then everyone knew that Libya was still trying to acquire these nuclear weapons. And obviously the international community, the West, um, were not fans of this like military dictatorship having control <laughs> of nuclear weapons. So they started um, increasing sanctions on them, which especially impacted their oil exports. Um, and that is one of the reasons that eventually in 2003, that the Qaddafi regime decided like, okay, we will dismantle our nuclear program. And they didn't, they never fully acquired weapons. So they never built a bomb, but um, their program, it, it depends who you ask. Some, some people in the regime thought it could be revived. And some people thought it was like just this completely failed attempt. So they were never going to get nuclear weapons anyway, but um, the sanctions and just this international pressure um, had a lot to do with why they eventually started to dismantle their program. And I definitely see... Oh, sorry, sorry go, go ahead. ahead. No. <laughs> no, what were you going to say? I was going to say something about international coercion. I was just going to say it's it's interesting that both of these cases are in Africa. Like, it's just, it's notable that the two cases in which nuclear weapons have been given up are African states. It is notable. I didn't even think about that. I think so. Somewhere in your um, in your th the what, what what is it? The document. Um, you have something about how they didn't want like 
black people to have the nuclear weapons once they saw yes yeah it's 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 interesting because it's not it's not confirmed at all um Mm -hmm. but i was reading a report with um the former government of south africa so the government of clerk who gave up the nuclear weapons and the interviewer said well did you give them up because you didn't want to give them to the next government and he said no but then there was a footnote that said there are some scholars who um proposed that part of the reason what it was very much a racial reason and they did not want the new black government to have these weapons i am not surprised i just like that seems pretty on track yeah i feel like you know end of apartheid things really kind of being shaken up in terms of a domestic power perspective and also the regional security like environment it's very much you know not any one of these one things probably was the deciding factor but instead it was a combination of many things and they're like oh also this but also this too and i guess we'll just give up our nuclear weapons because we have these overwhelming binder of reasons to do so Mm -hmm. i think with Libya, the element, if we're looking at this from a critical perspective, um, the element of imperialism, Western hegemony, um, is still very prevalent even in Libya's case because that's it was continuous, like decades and decades of sanctions, diplomatic ties being cut off. They can't export their oil in the ways that they want to. It it took a toll in that, and I think some people would argue is imperialistic in nature because you're trying to control the United States, especially was trying to control what Libya was doing just because. You had a good thing where you said, you know, does it have to just all do with imperialism? And when I was reading about Libya, um, one of the things that stuck out to me was that Libya was considered this pariah state that no one could trade with, that no one could work with. So they were forced, in a sense, to talk with China, Russia, North Korea, um, AQ Khan. But really going meta from a critical perspective, I thought, well, pariah, you know, in what situation in the Western hegemony? Obviously, that that's the um, implication if we're saying that someone's a pariah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That also, I feel like, in today's nuclear politics between the West and North Korea and Iran, I'm sure that North Korea and Iran are taking a lot of notes on what happened with Libya because they essentially gave in to pressure from Western states um, and the economic sanctions that were imposed on them, gave up their nuclear weapons as a show of good faith um, to normalize relations with the West, because that was definitely a non-starter for um, normalizing relations. And then look what happened in, so they did that in 2003. In 2011, they, the West, like, definitely supported the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime um, for, you know, can say for good or bad reasons, like he was a military dictator. Um, 
but that then Libya had no like real recourse to protect itself because I'm thinking would Western countries really have I don't want to say intervened but would they have intervened in the ways that they did if Libya still had nuclear weapons probably not absolutely not I I totally agree with you I think that as we talked about in some of the previous episodes, is a really clear lesson for states like Iran and North Korea, where they see, look what happened to Libya. Obviously, we can't give up aspirations or we're going to end up just like them. And that rhetoric doesn't come just from those states, but also from, you know, the whole rhetoric of color revolutions from Russia, where there's this underlying, um, narrative that Western countries, specifically the U.S., pretend to support, quote unquote, democratic uprisings. um, And that all it is is a ploy (laughs) to overtake Russia, overtake Ukraine, Georgia. And of course, those revolutions, both in Ukraine and Georgia, were legitimate. But from a Russian perspective, they see it in the same way as this undercutting of what they see as their traditional uh, ways of living. In my free time, I like to instigate revolutions for my own economic and political gain in other countries. How about you? (laughs) I like to take long walks on the beach, but you know, I'm sure we're compatible. I'm sure. Now I really want to read a paper that's what if the international community was on Tinder and be like, this is the framework that I have chosen to use. Is this useful in understanding how states interact with one another? Okay, we talked about this in another episode at some point, and I wrote it down, and I still have it in my notes for, like, articles to write. I'm like, this is, yeah, this, I want to write a paper. I feel other scholars use frameworks that they find all the time, and the only point of their article is to say, is this framework useful for helping us to understand X? Tinder is a framework. So there's some really interesting African ways of thinking about nuclear weapons and African um, approaches. One of them is this abolitionist liberal institutionalist view, and that's from Kwame Nkrumah. And he had talked a lot about nuclear imperialism as the exploitation of smaller states, their indigenous people and territory for nuclear tests and uranium mining. Another really popular, or I shouldn't say popular, but another commonly used and thought about approach in terms of African theoretical approaches to nuclear weapons and technology is Ali Marzri's proliferate to disarm view, which talked about the psychology of the psychology of military superiority that made nuclear imperialism possible in the first place. So he actually focused on the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and said that even though this might seem good, what it actually does is freeze this discriminatory setup between countries that have nuclear weapons and countries that have not. So rather than just this kind of too simple way of thinking about this, he proposed a consortium made of Nigeria, Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Republic of the Congo, and a black-ruled South Africa, each with a small military nuclear capability. And he believed that only then would other nuclear armed states realize that they can't keep others from having nuclear weapons if they don't give them up themselves. And that's one of the main approaches um, 
how African scholars think about the nuclear order. I love it. Number one. And number two, I feel like this lays such a good framework or like way of looking at path towards denuclearization in general. I totally agree. I think what I also think is interesting is that when we're we're using African approaches to nuclear issues, it's already better than just thinking about Western ways of power and theorizing about nuclear weapons, because that can't be the only way that we think about these weapons and this culture. 100%. And like, so the United States whole shtick is that um, as long as nuclear weapons exist in the world, we will have them. And so, I mean, so you see this inherent tension with Masri's approach and the United States, because so if the United States were to shift away from its conventional way of thinking about nuclear weapons, like we won't give them up until others give them up and adopted Masri's approach, like this would just be a huge step towards a more like equitable nuclear international politics in general. No, I, I, I think you make a really good point there because as you said, the U S is always, we're not going to give any up unless other people give them up. And even then they never go as far as to say, we will give them up when other people do, but the implication is kind of disarmament can only happen if it happens together, but that mindset is so stuck, you know, it's very much, um, there's no way of moving forward because it requires such a huge buy-in from a, a large number of countries. Whereas this, um, you know, proliferate to disarm view, I think lowers the bar in terms of when and how disarmament is possible. Mm -hmm. And I think you touched on something very important, just for nuclear activists to recognize, like, if you want to make changes to U.S. nuclear policy and make it more equitable and, you know, get rid of nuclear weapons, we obviously cannot continue to work in the approach that has been our foreign policy for, I mean, since we created nuclear weapons. It's going to require like a radical restructuring of the system. And the and way like even the even just like the general public thinks about and understands nuclear weapons, which number one would require the general public to actually start to care about nuclear weapons again. There used to be this huge like social consciousness about the dangers of nuclear weapons. And I mean, I don't know if you also notice this, Gabby, but like among our generation, I think maybe among our parents' generation too, they just, there's like little to no awareness or care about it. And that would definitely have to change. There's definitely this steady decline between generations in how much people care 
about nuclear issues. And I mean, obviously that has to do with like living through the cold war and the constant Mm -hmm. threat of nuclear warfare. Like, yeah, you're obviously going to be more like cognizant about it when you're living through it. But even now I feel like we've talked about like the threat of nuclear war with North Korea or Iran or whatever rogue state that's, that's still in the news. And I think that drives like that definitely does drive like some of American politics. I mean, you think about like Donald Trump's politics and how he was very like vociferously critical of North Korea and Iran and how that was a very important part of his platform. And so it's like these issues, they're not like on on the back burner in American politics, but people now I feel like really just don't care about, or they don't have this like sense of urgency that I think that older generations did and older activists did. Absolutely. And I think it almost has become this taken for granted part of American politics. Um, Where, as you said, like, it's not as though nuclear weapons and nuclear issues don't play a really big part in how America thinks about policy, how it acts abroad and domestically, but it's not the same. It doesn't have the same visibility as something like immigration or right now, you know, coronavirus, climate change. These things are the current, I guess, popular trends to think about. And those are all important, like absolutely. But we have to also be thinking about nuclear issues at the same time. Also, because they're so connected to everything else. And I know this is probably beating a dead horse by now. Um, Just we've talked about this in pretty much every episode, but like the fight for racial justice, the fight for climate justice, um, the fight to dismantle the patriarchy, they are so connected to nuclear weapons. And I think, you know, we never talk about it in that way um, in like the mainstream media or in like traditional discussions around nuclear weapons, but you have to fight for these things like simultaneously. Yeah. And it's, I just looked this up because I wanted to make a point that there's almost 2 million people working in the federal government right now. Um, It's not as though there's a small group of people that are working on these issues. It is like a large, not a huge portion of the population, but a relatively large amount of people. And to think that there can't be some sort of better, more combined approach to looking at these issues is really surprising to me because we have whole of government approaches to dealing with other things. And yet we don't talk about how all of these things are interconnected. And as a preview for an episode that we're going to post, or we've already posted, who can say, um, we talked about education a lot with Genevieve Hackman and the role that that plays. And I think that is so key and underlying into all of this. Like if people and children learned about how nuclear weapons were so devastating and scary and how much they affect everything in different levels of education, that would go a really big way to rectifying this lack of importance that's been placed on it in the present. hundred percent. I don't really have anything else to say. I know that's bad, but no, I don't either. I, there's also just not a lot of research into it. Honestly, like I looked 
for articles about South Africa giving up. Okay, mostly I just looked at South Africa, to be fair. But (laughs) I was looking for South African scholars that focused on this. And there's just not a lot of that I saw research, which I found really odd and interesting. Because I was like, shouldn't there be more about this very rare phenomenon? Yeah, that does seem quite odd. Well... Research gap for young enterprising scholars who are listening to our podcast. (laughs) This is a great way to write something. There you go. But thank you all so much for listening to our conversation today. Yeah, we really appreciate it. We hope you learned something. Um, If we made any mistakes, you want to reach out to us for any other reason, or you're interested in being featured on our podcast, then you can email us at disruptrcp at gmail.com or slide into our DMs at disruptrcp on Twitter. Thank you all so much. Have a good day. Bye.